The Hamlet Podcast, episode 75. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Hamlet with me, your host, Connor Hanrity. I must confess it is rather humbling trying to analyse or break apart one of the most important speeches in this play, a speech that begins with one of the most famous phrases in all of English literature. Last time, I tugged a little at the thread of whether or not this is really a soliloquy, since there are various other characters on the stage, eagerly hanging on Hamlet's every word. A production could easily arrange things so that Hamlet could enter fully aware that he's under supervision. Either way, we know that Claudius and Polonius are listening intently, not too far away, and that Ophelia has been directed to read her book and look the part when Hamlet crosses her path. Some productions have even had Hamlet give the speech directly to Ophelia, causing all sorts of consternation among critics. There's always been an eagerness to make the words and ideas sound fresh, since of course this is one of the most famous speeches in all of Western literature, and indeed it's a patchwork of famous quotations. In previous episodes I've happily drawn attention to other works of art and literature that take their names from phrases within Hamlet, but to do so for this speech would likely take up an entire episode itself. I will however include my favourite speeches with the show notes on the website. It's going to take us two weeks to discuss this portion of the text, since it's too long and certainly too rich to digest in a single episode. That said, we'll start by reading the whole thing. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them. To die, to sleep, no more, and by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to, tis a consummation devoutly to be wished, to die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance to dream, ay, there's the rub, for in that sleep of death what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. There's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. For who would bear the whips and scorns of time, the oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely, the pangs of despised love, the law's delay, the insolence of office, and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes, when he himself might his quietus make with a bare bodkin? Who would fardels bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life, but that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveller returns, puzzles the will, and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of? Thus conscience does make cowards of us all, and thus the native hue of resolution is sicklied o'er with the pale cast of thought, and enterprises of great pith and moment, with this regard their currents turn awry, and lose the name of action. So there it is. 33 lines and 260 or so words, depending on whose version you're reading, which can strike terror and excitement into the heart of any actor charged with having to perform them. Thus far in the play we've had three soliloquies. The first is part of our introduction to Hamlet as he laments his mother's o'er-hasty marriage. His melancholy is so great that he might contemplate suicide but that God has forbidden it. 
so he must live on holding his tongue despite his heartbreak. The next comes after he has met his father's ghost, as Hamlet decides to accept the father's instructions and avenge his murder. The third was after the player's speech about Hecuba in Troy, wherein a fascinated Hamlet compares the artificial emotions roused by the performance and the very real responses percolating within him. Here he also determines that he will use a play to trick Claudius into revealing himself. His first soliloquy focused on the problems caused by his mother's behaviour, the second on his father's return from the dead, and the third on his own emotional response to Claudius's villainy. So we've had three brief glimpses into what he's been thinking and feeling. He's cooking up his own plan, and the time for action is fast approaching. A less subtle playwright might have had Hamlet come on stage here and wonder whether or not he should kill Claudius. To kill or not to kill. It would certainly be clearer. Instead, Shakespeare has him ask to be or not to be. Maddeningly, Hamlet then insists that that is the question. But what is the question? To live? To continue to live? To act? To kill? And if so, is it to kill himself, echoing the desperation of the first soliloquy, or to kill Claudius, echoing the instructions he received before the second? The genius of this line is that it is a question that suggests so many answers, but doesn't really give any. Hamlet's enduring fascination as a play comes from the multitude of possible readings. Two critics might make a legitimate case for entirely opposing interpretations of this line alone, and there are 32 more to follow. The said line is a perfect example of an 11-syllable line of Shakespearean verse, too, an ideal means of demonstrating the so-called feminine ending. Ten regular measures of didum 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 didum, with an extra syllable on the end, used generally to symbolise that something is giving the character pause, making him think, because things are not quite right. To be or not to be, that is the question. It's certainly my favourite example to use when I'm teaching Shakespeare's verse, since it's such a tremendously well-known line. What's interesting? is that the first several lines of the soliloquy are equally out of joint. Hamlet continues, of course, having determined that that is the question, and he then qualifies it. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them. Is it better to suffer one's fortune, he wonders, or to take arms and by opposing end it? either by winning or losing. It's possible that by fighting one might win, and of course thereby one's troubles might end, or indeed one might lose, and that would be the end of one's life. To die. To sleep. No more. And by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished. Shakespeare here likens death to a sleep, no more. Something no less threatening than going to sleep. Indeed, for Hamlet, it would be an end to the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to, all the natural miseries and events that we as humans inherit by default just by being alive. If all this could be ended just by dying and going to sleep, it's a consummation devoutly to be wished. In this speech that is so much about being and living, Hamlet must also focus on the alternative and he repeats it. To die. 
to sleep. As if convincing himself that dying really wouldn't be so bad or so scary. But things are never that simple, and Hamlet's imagination revs up again as he contemplates sleep. To sleep, perchance to dream. Aye, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. Sleeping untroubled would be all very well, but in that sleep it's possible one might dream. And that might be a problem, or as Hamlet so famously puts it, there's the rub. This term actually comes from the game of bowls, wherein a rub is the name given to any little block or obstacle that knocks the ball off its course. There's a line in Richard II that also uses the word like this, and I'll put it in the show notes. Hamlet's and Shakespeare's imagination is so rich precisely because he can pepper even this vast existential meditation with thoughts and images from something as everyday as a ball game. The rub, or the point, is Hamlet's worry that in that sleep of death what dreams may come. Hamlet is surely no stranger to nightmares, having been haunted in his mind's eye by visions of the dead king even before his encounter with his father's spirit. Now he wonders what kind of dreams might come to us when we have shuffled off this mortal coil. Shakespeare's poetic image here is that our spirit, or our being, is encircled by our flesh, which we then shuffle off once we die. It's not a million miles from the image of a snake shedding its skin, and Shakespeare seems to have coined the phrase himself. The point is that it's worth bearing in mind that whatever dreams we may have in life, those that might come to us in death are worth considering and must give us pause. There's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. It's the fear of this, or respect for it, perhaps, that makes humans live so long before they die. Old age isn't great, as the fella said, but it's not so bad when you consider the alternative. But why should we suffer so much? Why do we go on living when we could end it all? For who would bear the whips and scorns of time, the oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely, the pangs of disprised love, the law's delay, the insolence of office, and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes, when he himself might his quietus make with a bare bodkin? Shakespeare goes through a long list here of some of life's little miseries, the whips and scorns of time, some of the worst little things that life can throw at us the wrongs done by an oppressor, or the insulting treatment from an arrogant man. Contumely is a really great word, listed as a sin as far back as Geoffrey Chaucer. It can refer in particular to condescending or insulting language from someone who thinks they know better. Certainly one of life's miseries is to be on the receiving end of this. Next on the list, the pangs of despised love or disprized love, as it says in the folio. Whether it's undervalued or one-sided, love can certainly hurt. The law's delay, a lack of justice. The insolence of office and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes. This is a real kicker. Being in the position of having to put up patiently with someone in office who is unworthy. Anyone who has ever had an incompetent superior or a horrible boss has certainly suffered this one. Unworthy can be interpreted as worthless, and this might even be Hamlet's little indirect nod toward Claudius, the undeserving, worthless usurper on the throne. This might be a fruitful point of discussion and interpretation, depending on whether or not you think that Hamlet knows that Claudius is listening, and so on. Having listed all of these woes, these whips and scorns, if not quite natural shocks, Hamlet asks, 
why would anyone put up with all of this when he might himself his quietus make with a bare bodkin? One's quietus, as Shakespeare uses it, is the settlement of a debt. In medieval courtly speech, one made one's quietus by paying one's dues. When you were done, it could be said that quietus est, it is settled. While the actual Latin and the word quiet that comes from it might mean at rest or even peaceful, the technical term is about payment. Of course, Shakespeare had learned Latin at school and could easily have meant both, but it's worth mentioning the first reading, since Hamlet's father spoke of his reckoning and his account at the moment at which he died, earlier on in the play. The bare bodkin that ends this long sentence is an exposed dagger. So Hamlet's question is, wouldn't it be easier to pay one's debt, settle one's account, and get some peace and quiet with the blade of a knife? Hamlet is vacillating between the horrors of being alive and the fear of what might come after death, whether you cause your own or not, in some of the most vivid language Shakespeare ever wrote. When you break it down, it's not so inaccessible on paper, at least, but it comes with so much baggage and so much history and the performance of every actor that has gone before that, of course, it must seem daunting. A friend of mine, for my money one of the finest actors of our generation, tells a brilliant story of when he played Hamlet somewhere in rural Ireland. He was downstage centre and had been directed to take a little pause after the first few words of the speech. It was the first performance of rather a long run and he was understandably nervous. To be or not to be, he began. One of the young people in the audience cheekily piped up. That is the question. This obviously was not rehearsed, but the great actor responded in the moment. That is the question. He agreed. The whole speech became a conversation, as he had made it clear that he could hear them just as much as the audience could him. There were no more contributions from the audience that night, but it made for an electric atmosphere. There's plenty more of this speech to come, but this has, I think, already become the longest ever episode of the Hamlet podcast. We'll continue with the remainder of the speech next week, and I hope you'll join me then. Thank you so much for listening, and be sure to check out the website for your chance to join our mailing list, and to find all of the extra materials mentioned within this episode. I'll speak to you next time.